Good morning. I am Alicia, and I'll be reading the uh, message or the uh, scripture for today. Um, you can follow along on the slides or um, open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 2, 1 through 5. It says, The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall come forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Thanks, Alicia. Uh, we're starting a, a new series this morning called Tried and Truth, Tried and Truth, and it uh, begins with Isaiah chapter 2, as you just heard uh, Alicia read. Uh, this morning's title is actually Hope, Hope. Um, the, the reality of, uh, of what we're seeing in this text is actually a response to a lot of conflict that's taking place uh, in the then world, and I think it's something that um, continues to exist even in our current world. Uh, seems like you can't really go anywhere without experiencing some form of conflict. We're all familiar with relational conflict, obviously. Um, there's, uh, there's conflict between nations, unfortunately, a lot of war and, um, and different types of uh, conflicts and battles happening in our world. And uh, there's even conflict among strangers, right? We see that often, probably more often than we even like to see it. Uh, there's this thing kind of gaining momentum in our world that it has a a phrase, it has a title that never used to exist. It's kind of defined right now in today's culture. It's called road rage, right? Have you ever heard of road rage? Have you ever experienced road rage, right? Um, we'll all pretend like we've just witnessed it and that we're not the instigators of that road rage. I'm not really sure what the tipping point is, except for it seems like there's just increased tension, increased conflict to the point where it's just expressed in, in ridiculous ways. We see it in social media. There's this rise of where people can kind of be distant, and so they can just aggressively put things out there. And uh, all of a sudden, you realize you would never say that to that person's face. And yet on social media, it's just like gives you permission to be just absurd. Um, other people, not anybody listening to this or you know, those other people, they're crazy, right? Um, I actually experienced uh, road rage before. I'm not... Um, I was going to say I'm not an instigator of road rage. My wife might disagree with that. Um, mostly because I find it fascinating when people get angry. Uh, like, I, we're driving. Like, what is there to be mad about right now? Um, especially if there's no damage being done to your vehicle or anything. Like, uh, I, I was slowing down recently because I got turned around and uh, still learning some of the areas around here. And so, slowed down. This guy, like, freaked out. I mean, just flipping me off, beeping his horn. I was going like five miles under the speed limit for like a quarter of a mile. Like, I am so sorry. If you don't have a pregnant woman sitting next to you, you have no right freaking out on me right now. He just flies by and I'm just thinking, what is he so angry about? And then I think, 
I should ask him. And so I just start to like follow people like that. And I just want to like, I want to ask him like, what are you so mad about? That time in particular, we ended up stopped at the same red light and I was going to put my window down to ask him and my wife was like, what are you doing? I was like, what is he so mad about? I just don't understand. I'm going to tell him that I was lost. She's like, don't even say a word to him. And he's going like this. He's got his blinker on. He's like, pull over. I'm thinking, what would he do? What would he do if I pulled over, right? And I'm looking at this guy and I'm thinking, he doesn't want me to pull over because I can see in my van, I can see kind of like the size of him and I could just see like how angry he is and I'm in a minivan and maybe he hasn't played his cards real right, you know? I'm thinking, what's going to happen when we pull over and I get out? And he's like, just kidding, you know, like peels away or not that I'm like super intimidating, but he just wasn't. And uh, I just, I get intrigued by things like that. It's just so much conflict, so much conflict all around us. And there are times that my wife's not with me in the car and and so I have opportunity to, to talk to people that are so angry. Recently, I was on the thruway, and uh, I was trying to get over to get off because uh, I had kind of been in sort of my own world and just kind of going along with cruise control, and all of a sudden, there's my exit. And so I'm looking over, and there's a spot for me to go over, and so I go over safely and I'm not making anybody angry, and I get off. But the reason why I say that is I didn't have the opportunity to kind of slow down off the on-ramp as you normally would. And the way this off-ramp works, you come up and then you have to yield to people coming across the other way to go through the tolls. And so as I come up, I come up the off-ramp a little bit faster than typical. And um, I still slow down in time for this yield sign, but I'm going a little quick. And so I slow down, this car's coming towards me and he's waving his hands. I'm thinking, what is going on with him? And as he gets in front of me, he's like slows down, beeps his horn, flips me off. I'm like, what in the world could I have possibly done wrong? And so I wonder, what is he so angry about? And I'm alone in the car, so I can ask him. Because my wife's not like, what are you doing, right? So I pull behind him in the easy pass, and he goes through, and I go through, and we get a red light right there. And so he stops, and I pull up next to him, and I put my window down. And he's like super ready to talk to me. He puts his window down right away, and he's like, I don't recommend this, by the way. I, I'm, not, I'm not even sure why I do it. I think just curiosity gets the best of me. And he's like, hey, a-hole, and just like starts freaking out right away. I was like, I, so I just said to him, I was like, what are you so angry about? And he goes, what am I so angry about? I was like, yeah, I have no idea what I did wrong. And he goes, did you see how fast you came off the off-ramp there? I was like, well, yeah, but I had a yield sign. He's like, that's right, mother bleep, you know? I was like, I was like, well, but I yielded, right? And he's like, well, well, yeah. I was like, so then why are you so angry? Well, because it, it scared me. I was like, so you just freaked out and you're freaking out on me right now because you got scared? And he's like, no, well, yeah. I was like, I yielded, right? He's like, yes. Yes, you yielded. I was like, okay, so I didn't do anything wrong. He's like, no, no, no. All right, man, have a good day. He's like, yeah, yeah, you too. He puts his window up. I was like, it's so interesting to me. I don't know why. I don't want it to be, but I don't understand sometimes how quickly people jump to conflict. Just jump to it. He doesn't know me. He doesn't know if I'm armed. He doesn't know anything about me. And yet he's just so quick to just instigate conflict. And so I have a question as we go into the text this morning. Why is there so much conflict? 
I want you to consider that as we go into the text this morning. Why is there so much conflict? I want to submit to you that conflict isn't so much about right and wrong as it is about self. That the root of conflict oftentimes becomes about right and wrong, but the root, the core issue in conflict is self. It's self. Sure, sometimes I think I'm right. And in those moments that I think I'm right, the core of the problem is about myself. It's about self. Sometimes I just want to be heard. In the midst of conflict, I just want to be heard and understood. And in those moments, it's about self. I want to be heard. This is about me. I deserve to be understood. Other times, I want something my way. I don't even care that I'm wrong. Like, I'll admit that I'm wrong. It's not about right or wrong. I just, I want it my way because it's about self. Now, I'm not admitting to some like huge failures on my part that are shocking to you, right? It's not like some deep revelation about something that's unknown. I'm, I'm talking about something that should resonate with everyone in this room. I'm admitting my humanity, Because at our core, sometimes we all think we're right. Sometimes we just want to be heard. We want to be understood. Sometimes it's not about right or wrong. We just want it our way. 100% of the time, conflict is about self. This idea of an elevated self is a human fallen condition. Christian or not, Christ follower or not, whether you believe in God or if this is your first time at church and you're skeptic about the things of God, if you're alive, you wrestle with this idea of elevating yourself. And hence, conflict results. It's not a new thing. In fact, on August 24th, 410 AD, a little while ago, about 1,500 years ago, Rome fell. Rome, the most powerful nation in the world at the time, fell to the Visigoths. And a lot of people thought, this is the end of the world. This is it. This is Armageddon. This is how it happens. The most powerful entity in the world is crumbling, and this is the end. And in the midst of that conflict, in the midst of the assumption of the end of the world, there was a a bishop by the name of St. Augustine, or St. Augustine, depending on uh, how you want to pronounce it. Uh, He was the the Bishop of Hippo in North Africa, and uh, a well-known theologian that formed a lot of theology that we hold true to today, or still are discussing points between different uh, spheres of uh, religion. And in the midst of this fall of Rome, he wrote a revolutionary book called The City of God the city of God. It's still utilized today in theological circles. And in it, he presents this idea that the city of man, which was represented by Rome, and the city of God, which is represented by the true Christian church, will always battle. And so he kind of took this perspective of this reality that there's this tension happening in the world around us between the city of God and the city of man. The premise is compelling. He explains that any city of man 
has at its core a love of self. The core, a love of self. And that a love of self breeds contempt of God. Isn't that interesting? That a love of self literally breeds contempt of God. Why? Because when you love self, you're placing self in the God role of your life. And so therefore, you actually have contempt towards God because you want to be the leader of your own life. You want to be the God of your own life. He goes on and states that a true city of God at its core has a love of God. That's not that earth-shattering, right? But he goes on to explain that a love of God breeds contempt of self. I think that's super interesting that if you truly have a love of God, that if God is the, the leader and Lord of your life, that it breeds contempt with self, that you literally evaluate uh, the desires of your own heart and mind and you literally um, are at contempt with your flesh. Paul embodies this. He talks about the, the tension that he has. He submits that all of history is a battle for glory, a battle for glory, love of self versus love of God, and therein lies conflict. At its core, when it's all boiled down, whether it's people battling against one another or our own internal conflict or countries against countries or strangers in conflict with strangers, at its core, love of self versus love of God. The outcome of that battle is actually revealed here in Isaiah chapter 2. This constant battle culminates in what chapter 2 begins to unpack. Verse 2 says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up, I'm sorry, and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. I want to unpack this verse a little bit because... Um, I want us to understand something that might not be obvious at first reading at face value. It says, it shall come to pass in the latter days. And latter days is the meaning of uh, the culmination of days or the day of the Lord, if you will, the end of the earth. Uh, it says, as, uh, it, it will come to pass in latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established. So the house of the Lord shall be established. The way that the, the original Hebrew is constructed in the context of the house of the Lord shall be established. It stresses that this is a fact and that it's continuance. Um, so fact and continuance. The idea that the house of the Lord will be established. It's not negotiable. It may, uh, it's not that it may not happen. It will happen. And once it is established, there will be a continuation of that house of the Lord. It will happen for all time. That what will happen? As the highest of mountains and shall be lifted above the hills. Now, culturally, what this means is uh, places of elevation were places where uh, gods existed, little g. So um, idols were uh, worshipped at high places. High places were holy places. And so what this culturally is communicating is that the highest of places is indicating that the Lord, the God of Judah, is the Lord of all. 
that his authority will be established for sure and for all eternity because he is the God of all. And what's really interesting is, uh, is what's, uh, what it says next. It says, and all the nations shall flow to it. It's an interesting um, picture if you think about it in the context of a mountain and you think, here's this mountain and here is God at the top of this mountain, not only a position of authority, but literally a physical place of height. And it says that the nations shall flow to it. That literally nations will flow uphill. Supernatural. It makes no sense. Right? If it said, and the, the Lord God, uh, the Lord of all shall be placed in the deepest of valleys and all nations shall flow to it. You're like, okay, that makes sense. Lowest place, everything flows to it. So how is it that this place of height results in the nations flowing to it? It doesn't say that the nations will be drawn, but that they will flow. There's a supernatural element taking place in the text here. Because listen, left to ourselves, we are glory hogs. That's the reality of it. We want glory for ourselves. We love self. We can try to stop, but you and I were made to worship. The answer is not to stop the love of self. That will never work. I mean, I could say that, um, but it wouldn't really result in anything except maybe making you feel bad. Maybe you'll um, beat your chest and weep a little and be like, oh, I'm wretched, I can't believe it, and it will breed contempt of self. But in the end, when left to your own vices, you will turn to love self yet again because of your humanity. And so the answer is not to stop loving self, but rather to love something greater than self, more worthy of your glory. You see, oftentimes we are glory hogs because we view our lives as worthy of our glory. Because we have not realized the weight of the glory of God. Literally, glory in the Hebrew means weight. And so when we have the weight of our lives and we see nothing weightier, nothing more filled with glory, we worship self. So we need to experience the weight of the glory of God. How do we do that? How do we understand the depth of who God is? And the only answer is to come face to face with the truth of the gospel and realizing that we should have contempt of ourselves, that we should come to the place where if God is truly the Lord and leader of our lives, that when we look at the desires of our own heart and the emptiness of that, You see, if you haven't come to the end of yourself and the emptiness of trying to establish yourself as the Lord of your life, it just means you haven't tried hard enough yet. (laughs) You haven't lived enough life. That's really the only answer. Because if you've lived enough life, you realize the hamster wheel that you're on of pursuit of glory only to find emptiness. To worship that which is created only to realize that it doesn't fulfill what you thought it would. Maybe you haven't gathered enough stuff Maybe you haven't worked hard enough yet, but when you get enough stuff, when you work hard enough and all you are is tired and yet unfulfilled, then you come to the end of yourself and you realize there's got to be something weightier. There must be something that possesses more glory than me. And so we search. 
We search, and if we find and understand what it is that Jesus has done, then we realize the weightiness of the truth of the gospel. We realize that in and of ourselves, we can never be good enough. We could never fulfill the law, but Jesus lived the law. He fulfilled it, and yet he laid down his life for us. You see, people hearing the gospel and being drawn to Jesus is a supernatural flow uphill. It's an uphill flow. Think about that. You don't descend into this awareness of who God is. It's an uphill supernatural flow against all reason and common sense that we, as wretched as we are, as sin-filled as we are, as bent as we are towards self-worship, yet God loved us. And he awards grace to us. And he extends mercy. Who are we that he's mindful of us? You feel the weight of that? The reality of the truth of who God is and the transformative potential in our lives? And yet in the midst of our brokenness, God calls us to himself. Supernaturally. Verse 3 goes on and says, and many peoples shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that we may, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law or the teachings and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. It's interesting. It's a, it's almost a a foreshadowing or a prophetic talk or speak of what it is that Jesus articulates as the Great Commission. Go and teach, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That we'll go and do these things, but something, what's interesting that happens in verse 3 is that as people come to worship and know the Lord, as they come to this house of the Lord, as the city of God is established, the result is missional, right? Come, let us go. Come, let us go up. That as we as individuals are drawn to the Lord, that the result is that we say, come, let us go. That we begin to transform the relationships we interact with. You see, the gospel that wins us also grows us. And as our lives are transformed personally, as we declare Jesus, the Lord and leader of our lives, God rebuilds our lives. There's literally a building taking place. And some of the proof of that rebuilding is that it changes the way we relate to others. The outflow is the way we relate to others is transformed. Maybe that's why I'm so intrigued when somebody completely loses it. There's a transformation that takes place in the life of a Christ follower in the way that we relate to others. Not simply missionally. It doesn't mean that all of a sudden we become like weird, awkward, like super uber spiritual people that say spiritual jargon at every turn. That's weird. It creeps people out. (laughs) It puts people at dislike. I've heard people before at grocery stores when someone's like, oh, it's a beautiful day. And they're like, it's the day that the Lord has made. We should rejoice and be glad in it. (laughs) Praise God. (laughs) And the person's like, paper or plastic? Yeah. (laughs) I don't understand. You're like, I think I just witnessed. I'm like, no, I think you just scared them. 
Yeah. And like, no, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> like, nah, you should also put that ginormous Bible in your purse, you know? It's not that we become spiritual weirdos that, that run around saying uber spiritual things. It's not about, it's, it's about relating to others in a way that transforms their mentality. That you're literally different. That in the midst of brokenness, you exude joy, not because of the pain, but because of the awareness that God's walking you through that pain. That in the, in the midst of a crazy day, someone looks a little bit upset and you ask them how they're doing and they say, fine. And you say, no, really, I, I asked because I actually care. How are you doing? They think, wow, you're a little different. The way you relate to others becomes different if you've been transformed by the truth of the gospel. It's one of the ways. And that's what we see in the text here, the transformation of individuals as a result of having an encounter with Jesus Christ. That as the the city of God is built, it will begin to transform the city of self. Imagine what it would look like if we stopped building and fortifying the city of self and instead directed all glory and honor to God and truly became the city of God, the church that Christ intended. That we would be slow to anger and quick to love. We would be filled with mercy and act on behalf of those in need. That's some of what Isaiah is talking about in chapter one that we just got over with. Say, listen, you've been transformed by relationship with God, supposedly, and yet there's no fruit. Are you just going through the religious motions? So what's the, the result if, if we could start to direct glory and honor where it belongs and stop focusing on self? Well, it results in verse 4. It says, He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. It's amazing, right? Neither shall they learn war anymore. Hmm. The imagery here is incredible, if you think about it. The swords literally being pounded into to plows and spears into pruning knives. Some commentators say that it's a, a foreshadowing of a return to the Garden of Eden. That as we fully uh, become the city of God, that as God does the work that only he can do and draws people to himself, that there will be um, ultimately the return of Christ and a return to the Garden of Eden. And so therefore there will be no need for violence anymore. Now there's need to tend to the garden. Others will say that the, that the that gospel transforms hearts from warring to producing a harvest. Either way, regardless of whether you think it's a a foreshadowing of the Garden of Eden or simply the reality of the transformative work of the truth of the gospel, it still results in the same, that when God is the center of our lives, the outflow of that is peace. That conflict decreases. That we become people that are peacemakers. We want so badly in our world to have a utopian society. This this society of no conflict. And all throughout history, it's been attempted to be created. This place where everybody can just get along. And yet it always falls short. It always results in conflict. 
And the reason being is because a utopian society cannot be established until the return of Christ. That ultimately, it's a sin issue. It's a humanity issue. We won't experience that until Christ's return. So until then, we're filled with hope. Why? Why are we filled with hope? Because the city of man is the tried, and the city of God is the truth. And so we can continue to try, or we can rest in the truth. You know, verses 2 through 4 are a poem in the original text. A poem of peace and hope, believed to have been sung at times. It was echoed again, actually, in Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. The same exact text is written again by another prophet, a minor prophet. If you don't believe that God and God alone is worthy of your glory and your worship, then you're free to continue trying. No one's going to stop you from continuing to trying and find something greater, something more worthy of glory. But the reality is this, regardless of who you are and where you are in your spiritual journey, this text requires something from every one of us. To experience the the truth of who God is, what it is that he's done, and what it is that he will do in the days to come. It, It has to culminate in an outflow of the way we relate to others. And so I want to challenge you as you leave this place to consider an application question. The question is this, who will I serve this week? Who will I serve this week? (laughs) Now listen, you can treat this as a task where you say, you know what? I'm going to serve somebody. Not because I love them, but because the pastor told me to. I'm going to do it. I'm going to be serving people, whether they like it or not. You're welcome. (laughs) Aren't I benevolent? (laughs) But the hope and the prayer that the, that the preaching and teaching team had when we came together and considered this morning's message was that we would come to a place where we understand the glory of God, the weight of who God is, and that in the midst of the weight of who God is and who Jesus is in your life, that you would be willing to say, you know what? I want God to be the Lord and leader of my life. And I want that to breed contempt of self, so much so that I want to consider what others need. Not because of false humility or because of the best attempt, but because we know that Jesus served us. Because of who God is and what he's done for us, we are compelled to serve and love others. And so I want to challenge you as you go about your day this week, day in and day out, if you profess Christ, that in the midst of conflict, in the midst of disagreement, and you will have them, (laughs) it will happen, that in those moments, you'll be praying prayers, asking the Lord to, to reveal to you what it is that he would have you do in the midst of that, and that you would truly be transformed by the truth of the gospel and be a person of peace and a person that serves others. 
bringing conflict to a minimum. If you're here this morning and you're far from God and you have no interest in relating to God, then I want you to consider, is your contempt for God because of your love of self? Have you gotten to a place where you love yourself so much there's no way you could submit to God? It's not for me to answer, but I want to challenge you to consider it. Because I know that when I make a statement declaring that the city of God is truth, that if you're in the midst of processing that, it seems almost like a definitive statement of, uh, of dismissal to your journey, and that's not my intention. Instead, I want to lean into the reality that everybody's at a different place in their journey and to consider that if, in fact, God is truth, what are the implications in your life? For others of this morning, others of us this morning, maybe your application is to begin serving Jesus. When we talk about who will you serve this week, maybe it's surrendering your life to Jesus and to say, okay, Lord, I've been on this hamster wheel enough. I've tried to bring fulfillment in all these areas of my life, and I continually fall short. God, would you come and be the Lord and leader of my life? And if that's you, it's as simple as praying a prayer, admitting that you're a sinner to the Lord, acknowledging that he died for your sins, and asking him to be the Lord and leader of your life. In fact, if you pray that prayer this morning, I'd love to have a conversation with you after, talking about what the next steps could be for you. But for others of us in this room, if you've prayed that prayer, if you are in relationship with Christ, I, I want to ask you, how are you building the city of God? Are you building the city of God by serving others because of what Jesus did for you? Are you allowing that to be the outflow of your actions to others? Maybe that's your application. And if you're here this morning and you say, listen, I've committed my life to Christ and uh, I am continually serving others and the forefront of the truth of the gospel is, is right on the tip of my tongue and in the forefront of my mind in every interaction. If that's you this morning, then I want to challenge you. Are you on mission this morning? Are you one of the individuals saying, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Are you drawing others in? Are you inviting people to this place? Are you inviting people into spiritual conversation? Or are you just coming to this place for yourself? Because the outflow of the truth of the gospel is something contagious within ourselves. That say, listen, come, come on. You got to come check this out. Not because of a, a church or a group of people, but because of the city of God that's being built. Because of the glory and honor that Jesus deserves. So I don't know what your application is this morning, but I know that it requires something from every one of us. So I ask if you will, just bow your heads. And if you want, you can close your eyes or you can just keep your heads bowed. As you bow your heads, the, the worship team is going to make their way forward. And as they do, it will be to, uh, to provide opportunity for us to, to respond this morning to what it is that we've heard. In a moment, we're going to go into uh, to song. And before we do, I just want you to consider the application. 
Maybe it's a prayer you need to pray coming into relationship with Christ. Maybe it's a person you can already think of that you need to serve, that that's, you just know, man, I've, I've treated them poorly. That if they were to find out that I'm in relationship with God, they would be shocked because of how poorly I act. Make no mistake, this isn't about behavior modification. This is about connecting who we are to the God we serve and allowing that to flow into every relationship that we have. For others of us this morning, it's maybe considering a person that we need to invite to this place, maybe have a spiritual conversation to say, listen, I I know what you're going through. I know what it's like to, to be where you're at. I remember being as angry as you are. And you know what? There are times that I still am so angry, but there's a joy that I have because of who Christ is. And if you want, I'd love to share the story of my journey with you. I know for a lot of us, that's an intimidating conversation to consider. And I want to tell you, it's not the expectation of the Lord that that we have those conversations all the time. In fact, there's scriptural evidence of people being just simply brought into Christ's presence. This idea of invitational evangelism. We just simply say, listen, will you just come into God's presence? Like, I don't have all the answers to your questions. In fact, I don't even want you to ask questions because I'm going to answer them wrong. I don't know. But if I can just get you into Jesus' presence, would you just come to church with me? Just come to this place. I don't know what it is that the Lord's speaking to you this morning. But I want to challenge you to consider what it might be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would reveal to us what it is that we're to do. Lord, that we wouldn't simply leave this place having heard your word and do nothing with it, Father, but that we would be men and women of action, that we would be individuals uh, committed to hearing truth and responding. And so I pray for that as we leave this place that we would consider what it is that you would have us to do. What is it that you'd have us to do, Lord? We declare ourselves available. We worship you and we respond in adoration because of your glory, because you are weightier than every other thing in this world.